Scripture reading today, Romans 12, 1 through 8. If you turn that to that in your copy, please. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by grace given me, I say everyone, to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesizing, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouragement, then give encouragement. If it's giving, give much. Give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for Orenville Baptist Church, for the gathering of these folks today. Lord, I just give you praise for each one of them. Open up our hearts, open up our minds to your word, Lord. We pray for Pastor as he preaches today. May he deliver a message that just imprints upon our hearts. And we just give him encouragement too. And we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Chad. I was so excited to announce the ministry fair and for the... The other announcements that we had, I forgot to mention, we also have a members meeting. Some members immediately following the service, we have our members meeting. So please, please plan accordingly. It'll only be about three hours long, so it shouldn't be, shouldn't be too bad. <laughs> Get your nap in now. That's terrible. Why am, I, why am I saying that? Why am I saying I'm just saying what you guys are thinking, probably. So Paul urges us. Paul has a strong appeal to us uh, that we would uh, be active that we would be moving and that is that we would be a sacrifice for him that's that's the thought that's the idea this morning uh, that we would be a living sacrifice for him and use our gifts for him when we think about church and when i kind of think about church uh kind of notice over the years i'm sure you guys have too that there tends to be three different kinds of of church attenders Uh, there are church critics uh, those are those who just come and the church can't do anything right, doesn't do anything right. The church always makes all these mistakes. You just always see how everything's done, done wrongly. 
there's also church consumers. Church is all about them. They, they come to church to, to, to be filled up by the sermon or filled up by the singing or filled up by whatever. It's, it's me, 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 me. Uh, so you have these consumers and closely related to consumers as a critic because if you're here to consume, you're going to critique when it's not what you want to consume, right? It's not what I thought it was. But the third kind of attender of a church and the kind of attender we want to aim for is being committed. Uh, being committed to uh, the work of the Lord in the church. The committed attender or member understands that church is family. And the church is imperfect, but church is family. And we want to love one another and serve one another and encourage one another uh, with the gifts that he's given us. Again, the, the, the one who's committed to the church understands that church can be messy, very messy. You, you get a group this size in, in a room like this, and there's going to be conflict. But you're still committed to work through it, and you see that conflict is opportunity uh, to grow in Christ and to grow in your relationship with one another. The committed uh, use their time, their talents, their treasures for the health and growth of the church. Instead of spectating, they serve the church with their time and talent and treasure. I think most people know, most Christians know, that you should be serving in some capacity, some way, shape, or form, whatever that looks like, uh, based on your gifting, your time, uh, your, your season of life. But I think what's often lacking, what I want to provide this morning, I think what's often lacking when it comes to serving, because serving, I don't want this to come across as, oh, there's Pastor Andrew nailing us, like, oh, we've got to be serving. I want this to be motivation from, from the Word of God, because I, I know that serving in the church can be very, very hard and tiring and exhausting and, and difficult. It'll also be exciting. But I, I know that there's two sides of that coin. So I, this morning I want to offer up some biblical motivations to serve in the church that I hope will ignite your soul to want to serve, or if you're kind of weary, dragging, maybe a little bit like Josiah shared this morning, then I hope God will use this to kind of refuel you as you seek to, to serve him and to honor him. I'm actually going to share a couple of those this morning and a couple more next week, a uh, two-part two part sermon here. But the first motivation is the mercy of God. Motivation number one for serving is the mercy of God. Verse one, Paul says, I appeal to you or I urge you. He's urging action. What is that action? He goes on to say in verse one, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a what? What's it say? Present your bodies as a what? A living sacrifice. So there's the call to action, the urgent appeal to you and to me that we would be a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. And I want to go through seven characteristics of this sacrificial commitment. The first uh, characteristic of this commitment is it's total. Number one, total. Notice that it says in our text, Present your body as a living sacrifice. Which is to say, present your mind, your will, your toes, uh, your pinky fingers, your nose, your ears, your eyes, uh, everything uh, that's a part of your body. Present that in service to the living God. So it's total, your total body. 
the way you think and your emotions and your desires and, and your actions, every member of your body, your knees and your elbows. You don't always think about elbows that often, but my goodness, how hard life would be without an elbow. And how we're to, to totally commit these in service to the Lord. That my body is not my own. It's been bought with a price. been bought by the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a total commitment. It's also a living commitment, as it goes on to say in verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is to say, as long as there is breath in your lungs, you are committed to living for Him, to using uh, your body, your life for His praise and His glory. This is not a one-time decision. This is not one day out of the week for a few hours. This is 24-7 living sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ. The third one is holy. Our commitment is to be holy. You can see that right there in the verse. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy. What does holy mean? Holy means to be set apart. To be set apart for God's purposes. To no longer live with your ambitions and your kingdom building and your desires, but but for God's mission and and seeking to, to build his kingdom. So that's what holy means. You've been set apart for God's purposes. Every nook and cranny of your life being pervaded with the holiness of God. The way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the way you live life, it's holy, holy, holy. There's a holy otherness to it. Not just holy, but also acceptable. And you can see I'm just, I'm just making my way right to that verse and all the different things that modify that word sacrifice. It's, it's living, it's total, it's holy, it's acceptable, which could actually be translated in your translation might say this, pleasing. I'm amazed by that. It gives me incredible joy to know that God tells me this is what I find delight in. God says, I am delighted, I am pleased when you offer your life to me holy and solely for my use. That that pleases, that's acceptable to God. Isn't that incredible? To think about how your life, when it's laid down as a living, holy, total commitment to God, God says, that's pleasing to me. Isn't that what we want as Christians? Yes? To be pleasing to Him. That should be the question that you and I wrestle with constantly. Not, not is, is, is this okay? Can I, can I, can I, can I get away or around doing this? Is, is, you know, sometimes we try and get as close to the fire as we can without, what, without getting burned by it. That shouldn't be the question that we're wrestling with or thinking about. What we should be thinking about is not is it permissible, but does this thought, does this action, does this word, does it please the Lord Jesus Christ? That's life-changing uh, when we deliberately think that way and, and act that way and talk that way, uh, that, that my every word and conversation should be pleasing to Christ. It's also reasonable. That's what it means when it says, this is your spiritual worship at the end of verse 1. The Greek word there for spiritual is the word logikos. What's that sound like? Logic. 
And so what, what the scriptures are saying here is that in light of what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, in light of your, our, our, our great salvation through the cross, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in light of that, the only logical response, the only reasonable response is total commitment, holy commitment, pleasing commitment. That's the idea that's there. That God is worthy and, and of more than just part-time, convenient Christianity, but that it's, again, logical to just lay my life down and say, use me as you will, Father. My life is not mine, it's yours. Spend me however you'll spend me. Of course, the truth is that often we want to say, Here's, think of my life as like a, a check and I just, I leave a blank. However you want to spend me, Lord, spend me. We think God's going to spend us in, in big amounts. And honestly, the way God usually does it is he, this will sound bad, but he nickels and dimes you. He spends you out in the everyday things of life, living for him in the everyday things of life. Oh, Lord, I want my life to be used in this great, big, awesome way. And God says, that's great. Will you do serve me in this small, little way? And often we want to do that. We don't want that. But yet, that's what it means to be a living sacrifice. It's reasonable to do that. It's also deliberate. It's a deliberate commitment, a deliberate sacrifice. I say that because of verse 2. Verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, which is to say shaped or squeezed. Think of Plato, right? It's fun to kind of squeeze that, or clay. Uh, don't, be, don't be squeezed or conformed or pressed into the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewal, the metamorphosis of, of your mind, the utter change, the radical change of your life by the renewal of your mind. Now I say deliberate because the word conformed is present tense, and the word transformed is also present tense. So this is continual and it's deliberate. As you live and move and have your being, you are resisting being shaped and squeezed by this world while simultaneously being transformed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God at work in your life. So it's this continual, ongoing, deliberate change. It's nice to have cruise control when you t- drive long distances. There's no cruise control of Christianity. No sitting back, no laying on your back, Well, as Pastor Jack, who trained me for many years up in Pennsylvania, used to say, Christianity is not floating down the river belly up. It's not a bed of roses. The Christian life is a deliberate resistance to being conformed to this world and deliberate ongoing transformation as you seek to lay down your life for him. That's not all. It's also... The only word I could think for, for verse 2, the end of it, is, is this commitment is abandonment. You could say it's surrender or submission, whatever word you want to put there. I doubt you guys want to put the word submission there, but that, that's, the, that's the idea. Uh, abandonment, just utter abandonment uh, to him. Because it says in verse 2, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And man, I wish I had time to kind of elaborate on that last part of verse 2 more. It's just an amazing verse to think about the will of God. 
Uh, but now I just kind of want you to notice this for now, that that is a result clause. It says in verse 2, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. That indicates this is a result clause, which is to say you discern God's will by putting into practice what he just said in verses 1 and 2. You tracking with that? So here's how you know the will of God. Here's how you test it or discern it. It's by first laying down your life as a living sacrifice. Because honestly, why should God let you know his will if you don't plan on doing it anyways? (laughs) Right? So the first step in knowing God's will is wholly and solely surrendered to him. I'm, I'm all about him and living for him and honoring to him. Again, if, if, if you need to decide or not sure that you're committed to him, then, then, then why should God uh, reveal his, his will to you? Secondly, you need a renewed mind. That's the second way of knowing God's will. You need a renewed mind. That's important because, again, without a renewed mind, how can you understand God's will? How can you embrace God's will without a renewed mind, a mind that's been changed and transformed over time by the study of the Scriptures? And thirdly, I would say, as far as being abandoned and knowing God's will, you need to delight in God's will. First, you need to be utterly committed to it. You need to have a renewed mind so you understand it. Thirdly, delight in it. And I say that because of what it says. The will of God is good, and acceptable and perfect. Now the word acceptable, that middle word, is good, acceptable, and perfect. Acceptable means it's pleasing. That God's will brings joy. It's pleasing to you. It's a delight to you. And I would just suggest to you this is our biggest problem. I think often with you and I, if we're being honest... We, we, we don't want to know God's will so we can do it. I think sometimes we want to know God's will so we can think about it. Is that fair? I think sometimes, if we're being honest, we don't want to know God's will so we can do it. We want to know God's will so we can kind of stop and think if I really want to do that. But we want to remember that God's will is good and it's pleasing and it's perfect. But we should delight in it. And that's why Paul urges us, he calls out to us, commit, be a living sacrifice. This is God's will. Lay down your life. Cry out to him, I belong to you. My life is not my own. That's God's will for your life. Now, maybe you're thinking that that all sounds a little radical. That all sounds a little crazy. That doesn't sound very reasonable. That doesn't sound very logical uh, to be this living sacrifice. How, how is it supposed to be motivating to me, Pastor Aaron? This isn't very motivating. This is overwhelming to me to think about that this is what God expects or calls upon me as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I get it. I can see giving God an hour or two here. I can see doing a little bit of this. But holy and solely, 24-7, committed to Him and being holy and living and total and, and, and deliberate and, and abandoned to him. My goodness, that's, that sounds pretty radical. Why would I do that? Well, it tells us in verse 1, doesn't it? Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the what? What's it say? By the 
mercies of God. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The mercy of God is is God's compassionate love. It's God's compassionate response uh, to our hopeless situation. And this compassionate response to our hopeless situation causes him to not give us what we deserve and give us what we don't deserve. That's what mercy is. God's compassionate response to the plight of our situation, the desperateness of our situation. And instead of giving us what we deserve, again, judgment for sin, he gives us what we don't deserve, his mercy and his forgiveness and his eternal life. The Bible is very plain that apart from faith in Christ, you are not basically good and messing up once or twice or here and there. Apart from Christ, you are wicked and sinful. You are hopelessly lost in sin. And for that sin, we deserve judgment. And there is therefore one thing we need more than anything else, more than we need the, the gas prices to go down and inflation to go down and the change in whatever political spectrum you're at. You know, we, we think we need this, 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 this. No, what you need is God's mercy. God's mercy. And God is rich in mercy. Praise God. He is rich in mercy. We are rich in sin and selfishness and richly deserve his wrath. But he is rich in mercy and sent his son to take his wrath for us. But that's not all. It doesn't say simply by the mercy of God, but the mercies, plural, of God. And this becomes our our motivation to, to lay our lives down, is that not only have we been saved from our sin, that we have been justified. Declared righteous in the sight of God. All of our sins wiped away and in their place has been charged to your account the righteousness of God. You have been declared righteous by the judge of the universe, by your faith in Jesus Christ. Not only that, you've been reconciled with God. You were his enemy. Now you are his friend. You've been delivered from all condemnation. Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who believe. You are loved with an unconquerable and inseparable love. You are united to Christ. You are free from the power of sin, free from the penalty of sin. You've been adopted into his family. He calls you his son. He calls you his daughter. He's been calling you to Christ-likeness. He's given you his spirit. He's predestined you to eternal life. These are just a sampling of his many, many, many riches of mercy. And in view of these mercies, the scriptures urge me and they urge you, they call upon you to this this choice, this action, this commitment. Sacrifice. Die to self. Live to God. In light of these mercies, it only makes sense to lay down your life for him. Jesus gave his all for us. How can we do anything less than give our all for him? That's the idea. That's found in our text. Oh God, take my life. Take my hands. Take my ears. Take my eyes. Take my legs. Take my feet. Take my tongue. 
Take my emotions and my desires, my thinking. Take it all. It's the only right, rational, reasonable response to the unbelievable riches of mercy you've so graciously given. Take my life and let it be. I like to say it this way. Salvation is a free gift of God that costs you everything. Amen? Salvation is the free gift of God that costs you everything and that you gladly lay down in sacrifice to him. Was it Patrick Henry who said, I only regret that I have but one life to lay down for my country? I would say as a Christian, I regret that I don't have 10,000 lives to lay down for my God and my King. Because even 10,000 lifetimes isn't enough to pay back to him the riches of his mercy. (laughs) What a God he is. How kind he is. How good he is to us. See again how the will of God is described as good, it is acceptable, it is perfect. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's will is good and perfect and acceptable? Then lay down your life. Lay down your life in obedience to him. Don't be a consumer. Don't be a critic. Be committed. Committed uh, to serve and to glorify his name. That's the first motivation. I hope it started to put a bit of a fire in your belly or started to make you get some energy back, uh, just thinking about how how weary it can be and and hard it can be to serve him. But I have another motivation. Uh, Scripture has another motivation. Who cares about my motivations? The motivation from Scripture is this, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, in particular his gifts. Paul goes on to say in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Notice that word is easy to miss in verse 3, the very first word, for, which is to say it links right back to everything he's been saying. For. This is important. This is how you renew your mind. This is how you are transformed. This is how you lay down your life for him. And it begins with first thinking rightly about yourself. It says in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. In other words, don't get a big head. Don't be prideful. Don't be arrogant. Don't think you're, don't have delusions of strength and importance. Don't, don't, don't again have this, this big idea of yourself. That's, that's not having a mind transformed. That's having a mind conformed to the world. When you get a big head and you're full of yourself and you think you're always right and you're never wrong and you're arrogant and you're prideful, then that is to say you are thinking like the world thinks. That is not a transformed mind. Instead, we must think of ourselves with sober judgments. That's what it says in the middle of verse, verse 3. Which is to say... Have a realistic estimation of yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself, but also don't think too lowly of yourself. Both are wrong. And we have tendencies to go one or the other way, right? We either have too high or too low. Paul says, strike it in the middle. 
Know yourself. Know your strengths. Know your weaknesses. Don't live in this false reality. I, live how, I love how J.B. Phillips translated it. In his translation, he has, Don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance, but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities by the light of the faith that God has given you all. That's a great way to say it. Don't cherish your exaggerations of yourself. Have a sane estimation of who you are, your strengths and your weaknesses. Don't get puffed up. Don't get too low. Now, the way we do this is by God's grace. Because Paul says, For by grace given to me, I say this to you. Paul is just a great example to us. If anyone uh, should have a big head, it's Paul. Uh, Paul is mightily used by God. Paul's had visions and revelations that, uh, that, that he isn't even talking about often. He just kind of shares a little bit about them. But, but Paul has many reasons to be prideful. But Paul begins with grace. He says, the grace given to me. So what he's saying by that is all my gifts, all my callings, all my strengths, it all comes from God. It's all from him. It's all his grace. I don't deserve it. I didn't muster it up. It's, it's all grace. So by God's grace, don't think too highly of yourself, and by God's grace, don't think too lowly of yourself. Avoid those extremes. Instead, by God's grace, see who he's made you to be. <clears throat> now, as Paul talks about grace and thinking rightly of yourself, at the end of verse 3, he ties it into uh, this idea of the measure of faith. He says, think, of yourself, think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I think this further de- defines for us how you're supposed to think about yourself. Uh, and you say, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean when Paul says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned? That's a mouthful. What, what, what does that mean? Well, I'll share this. I don't think the word faith there, when we see the word faith in verse, verse 3, I don't think that that means objective faith. I don't think that means doctrine or creeds, what, what we would hold as our doctrinal positions. I think that refers to your ability uh, to discern spiritual gifts and its limitations. When we think about gifts that, that are being talked about here. The word faith there is also tied to the word measure, the measure of faith, meaning God in his sovereignty has measured out to you the gifts and the graces that he has given you. And so using your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, use that to test and discern the gifts that he's measured out to you. And do this in the life of the body, because it goes on to say in verse 4, for it's in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. You see, we don't all have the same function because God has measured out our faith and assigned it differently to each one of us. And he would have us use our renewed minds to discern those and use those for the life of the body. Because verse 5 goes on to say, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Before I dig into what those spiritual gifts are, just let me say a word here about how this immediately undermines pride. How can I or you possibly have a big head or be arrogant or proudful when this verse tells us, verse 3, that you are who you are because of the measure of faith that God assigned to you? You see? that immediately undermines or sweeps out the legs of pride, right? You are what you are because God made you that way. 
That's what it's saying. He's measured that out to you. He's assigned that to you in his grace and in his wisdom and in his love. So to get a big head about that makes no sense at all because you received it. But it also makes no sense at all to have this low self-esteem and think very little of yourself and always be beating yourself up because, again, the God of the universe has measured out to you these gifts of faith. And so why would you have this, oh, woe is me, kind of Eeyore kind of way of living when God in his grace has done this for you? You you see how that immediately eliminates and, and rules out these highs and lows of how we think about each other. It makes you sane. It gives you reality. It's amazing to think about. Now, what are these gifts? He goes on in in verses uh, 6 and following, 6 through 8, to to highlight seven gifts in particular. I would suggest to you that this list is not exhaustive. There's many more than this. I would also encourage you, when you read through this list of spiritual gifts, do not in your mind, or even with a pen, uh, write or draw in or imagine these dark, bold lines between each gift. I think we do that a lot. Uh, we, we think, well, if I have this gift, I don't have this gift. What I would suggest to you is that you are most likely a blend of many of these different kinds of gifts and different capacities and measuring outs of God of these gifts. I like how one person put it. They said, spiritual gifts are like a palette of colors from which God selects to blend a unique hue for each disciple's life. It's pretty good, isn't it? That spiritual gifts are like this palette of colors that God blends together to give to you so you can serve the church. So don't draw rigid lines between them. Uh, See them as operating in varying degrees and mixtures. Okay? So we're going to jump into these seven, seven spiritual gifts. The first one it says is prophecy. I would love to kind of know what comes to your mind when you hear the word prophecy. I'm willing to bet when you hear prophecy, you think someone who predicts the future. I think that's usually what comes to our mind when we hear and think about the word prophecy. And it certainly can mean that. We certainly have examples of that in the New Testament. That is not its only meaning, and I would argue that is not its primary meaning. First uh, Corinthians 14.3, a good cross-reference, First Corinthians 14.3 uh, says this, The one who prophesies speaks to people for the upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So there's the purpose of prophesying. It speaks to people to build them up and encourage them and console them. So here's prophecy as, as, as I understand, as I study the scriptures. Prophecy here means the ability to pass along revelation from God. That's prophecy. It's the ability to pass along revelation from God. That revelation may be revelation about the future, or that revelation may be a message from God that a particular situation needs for his encouragement or consolation or upbuilding. Does that make sense? Clear as mud. What are you talking about, Pastor Andrew? To be quite frank and open and honest about it, every time before I preach and every time before I counsel, I ask God to give me the gift of prophecy. I ask him to give me a revelation from him that will help me to say exactly what this body or this person needs to hear for their edification. 
Often what comes to my mind is an example from Spurgeon, that guy I talk about maybe once, once every few years. He kind of shows his head. Uh, but, but Spurgeon uh, shares this one illustration in his life where once while he was preaching, he pointed at a man while he was preaching and said, Sir, those gloves that are in your pocket are not yours. You stole them. And lo and behold, that was true. And because of that prophecy, that man was repented and came to faith in Christ. Isn't that neat? It's very interesting, very powerful, how the Lord works. What I often find when I when I pray that prayer, not always, but I often find is I'll I'll say something that I didn't plan to say or want to say or have any desire to say, but I'll say it, and I'll hear later, man, when you said that, that's exactly what I needed. I think that's prophecy. I think that's, that's, that's what that is. Of course, prophecies must always be tested. That's why it goes on to say in verse 7 or verse 6, if, prophesy, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, which is to say in proportion to the faith. So faith here is not subjective. Faith here is objective. Faith here is saying uh, that there's one major fundamental guideline with prophecy. The prophecy must be within the boundaries of this. Yes? The prophecy does not yet get to go off the guardrails. Prophecy is governed and directed by the ultimate inspiration and revelation and fallibility of God's word. And so this is why you find in places like 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 20 and 21, where it commands you, do not despise prophecies, rather test everything. Right? Test everything. Then it says, hold fast to what is good. So we test prophecy by God's word. The second one is serving. Verse 7, if service in our serving uh, service is broad. Uh, service can refer to individuals. It can refer to taking meals, cleaning someone's house, taking care of someone's children, helping in emergencies. It can refer to the church, taking care of the church lawn, doing repairs, all sorts of things like that, helping with finances, and on and on it goes. The gift of serving is crucial. Listen, if, if there's no one serving, it doesn't matter how good the teaching or preaching is, <laughs> right? Serving is critical, the church cannot function without serving any more than it can function without teaching and preaching. And serving is, is, is being like our Lord Jesus Christ who came to serve us, not to be served. The third one is teaching. The one who teaches in his teaching. What's interesting about each of these gifts is we should all, all be doing them, whether we're gifted or not. We, we should all be uh, speaking, seeking to exhort others and serve others. We should all be teaching God's word. If you're a mom or dad, you're teaching your kids. If you're a, a brother or a sister, you teach your brother or your sister. Uh, I'm, I'm teaching. We're all teaching. But some are especially given that gift of teaching, that ability to diligently study God's word and apply it to the lives of others. Uh, That can happen formally and informally. It can happen like what I'm doing right now. It can happen one-on-one. It happens anywhere, everywhere. The fourth one is exhorting. It's a fun word to say. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. 
That word has a wide range of meanings. The word can mean encouragement. It can mean comfort. It can mean warning. It can mean pleading. It gets translated pleading in some places. It can mean trans- or counseling. Essentially, it means this. Uh, to exhort someone is to, it's a call to action. That's what exhortation is. It's calling others to action. Hebrews 3.13 uh, calls upon us to exhort others daily. And some are very gifted in this. When they speak, you feel very compelled to action. Or when they speak, you feel very encouraged. Or when they speak, you feel very strengthened. The fifth one that's there and found in verse 8 is the gift of contribution. The one who contributes in generosity. Did you know that some people have the spiritual gift of giving? Spiritual gift of, of generous giving? Again, we're all called upon to give, but some really have that gift. Some take amazing joy uh, in, in giving away and sharing their resources with others. The sixth one is leadership, the one who leads with zeal. Leadership literally means to stand before. And so that's what leaders do. They stand before others. They stand in front of. They seek to lead or direct. And leaders seek to motivate and coordinate and oversee uh, toward a particular goal. Sometimes those in leadership are prone towards laziness. So Paul uh, calls upon them to lead with zeal. Lead with zeal. And then the next one, the last one, mercy. Mercy is being compassionate. We just talked about that, right? God is merciful. Uh, that's neat how spiritual gifts reflect the Father. Uh, God is merciful, and we are to be merciful. To those who are hurting and helpless, we are to come alongside them and help them and build them up and do whatever we can uh, to point them towards Christ and to get their feet back under them. Now, it's crucial, it's critical. I, I kind of get a kick out of this, how, how Paul says, do that cheerfully. Because when, if mercy is helping people who are hurting, People who are hurting are generally miserable, right? The last thing they need is for someone to try and come along and do acts of compassion miserably with them, right? What, what, what a miserable person needs is someone who's filled with the mercy and compassion and love of Christ and can knowingly and wisely come alongside them and encourage them through their acts or words of service. <clears throat> I know that was kind of quick, rapid fire through some of those things. I'd encourage you to, to dig deeper into them. But my, my main point in, in doing that is just to say this. Use your gifts. So verse, that's what verse uh, 4, 5, or 6, 6 says. Use them, right? Use your gift. Use your gift for the health and growth of the church. Let me say it this way. Put a little twist on it. Spiritual gifts are not given to you. Spiritual gifts are given to the church through you. You hear the difference? That spiritual gift is not given to you. It is given to the church through you by the Spirit. I think that's really cool to think about because that puts spiritual gifts on a whole nother Level. It is not simply serving. It's not simply, oh, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. No, it's the Spirit serving the church through you. Man, that changes it completely, doesn't it? 
It's the Spirit ministering through you. It's the Spirit prophesying to the church through you. It's the Spirit serving or exhorting or giving. It's not you. It's not given to you. It's given to the church through you by the Spirit. What a joy. What an amazing joy to be used that way. What a compelling motivation to serve Him that way. So what's your gift? Are you using your gift? You say, I don't, I don't know what my gift is. I, I gave you a few thoughts in your notes there, how you can kind of think about that and, and learn what they might be. Uh, some of them are rather obvious, uh, but the first one I put in there is just offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice. That's the place to start. Just lay your life down. Use me however you want to use me, Lord. That's a good place to start in learning your gift. I don't want to do that, 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 that. I want to do that. That's not what you do. You say, whatever, Lord, use me. And, and that's a great place to be to start learning what your gift might be. Secondly, study the scriptures. Study, 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 study the scriptures. And what did they say about spiritual gifts? That renews your mind, right? Thirdly, examine yourself. That's what verse 3 said, right? It says to examine yourself, know yourself. What do you enjoy doing? What are you good at? Uh, do you enjoy doing what you're good at? There's a difference. You might be good at something, but you don't enjoy it. Uh, what do you enjoy doing? Are you good at it? What fulfills you? How, how about this? I like to come at it from this angle. A good way to know your gift, your spiritual gift, is what problems do you see? I'm, I'm quite convinced that if you're good at recognizing, oh, we're not doing good at evangelism, or oh, we're not, a great, we're not doing great at serving, or, oh, we're not doing great at whatever, whatever that might be, whatever you're prone to see, whatever problems you typically see, I think that's an indicator that that's your spiritual gift. Because you excel at it, you love it, you're passionate about it, and you notice when it doesn't happen. That make sense? So when you're prone to see problems at Orangeville Baptist Church, and we have problems, your biggest one is right here, you have problems at Orangeville Baptist Church, what we want to do is gripe and complain But what we're supposed to do is, hey, I got that gift. How can I use that gift and plug that gift in for the health and strengthening and growth of this church? What a difference that is. That's neat to think about, isn't it? So don't don't grumble and get discouraged and, man, I wish the church did better this or this or this. Then maybe stop and pray that that's your gift. How can you use that gift? How can you you get involved and and serve and use it to, to strengthen the church. Fourthly, like I've been saying, start serving. Don't criticize. Don't be a consumer. Use your gift. Fill the gap. It's up to you to make Orangeville Baptist Church the strongest, healthiest church you can be on this side of glory. Fifthly, once you've identified it and you're serving and you're using it, improve upon it. Develop it. Sharpen it. Get better at it. You have the gift of teaching. Great. Work at teaching even harder and better. You're the gift of serving. Great. Work at improving it. Right? It's not static. It's dynamic. Um, growing it. <clears throat> so those are the motivations. Don't be a critic. Don't be a consumer. Be committed by the mercies of God and by the spiritual gifts of God. Get involved. Get serving. Uh, and, and use those gifts for the health and the strength of 
the church. Again, I know serving can be hard, serving can be tired, serving can be discouraged, and I know there's different seasons of life where you're not able to do this or this or this. That's fine. I'm not saying standing up here saying that you should do that. I'm just simply saying by the mercies of God and by the Spirit of God, how can you uh, be involved in serving and helping whatever capacity for the health and strength and growth of your local church? Amen? And next week, we're going to consider a couple more motivations, but also we're going to consider ways you can be serving, and that will tie us in well with the ministry, with the ministry fair. Uh, but that's uh, where we're going. That's what we're looking for the Lord to do in our church. I'm going to pray. Uh, before I do so, I just remind you, members, that we have a members meeting uh, it's, it's 12 o'clock. We'll shoot to start that meeting by 12.15. Uh, so members, if you could be back in here by 12.15. Uh, also, don't forget the announcement from Don about we need helpers uh, for Orangeville Day on the 20th. If you can just take, use an hour, take up an hour, that'd be great. We can, we can use you. Sign-up sheets back there by the fireplace. You can't miss it. My wife is there waving them around at me even as I speak. Um, and coffee and connect. Don't be in a hurry to rush off. Grab coffee, connect, grow, encourage, fellowship. Pray with each other, build each other up. Amen? I'm going to pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are, and we are amazed by your mercies, the mercy of salvation, the mercy of justification, reconciliation, adoption, all these different mercies, mercy upon mercy upon mercy. You are rich in mercy. Oh, Lord, let that truth compel me and each one here, whether we're weary or tired or, or just need motivation, wherever we're at, maybe we're already soaring for you. Help it to make us soar even higher as we ponder anew these mercies of God. May they just be often in our hearts and our thoughts. And as we think about spiritual gifts, how, how amazing that is, Lord, that you want to serve uh, the church through your spirit, through us. You could have done it without us, apart from us, but you choose to do it through us. Amazing grace. We don't understand it, but Lord, we want to be useful, holy, living, acceptable, pleasing to you in the use of these gifts. So please strengthen us this way. Please motivate us to serve in this way. Uh, for your praise and your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.